0: This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack, and today we're on question 74. Are there silver bullets? What does that even mean? (laughs) I don't know if I'm entirely sure. Initially, I was going to make this a two-parter, and the first one was going to be Are There Silver Bullets, and the second one was going to be Are There Wooden Stakes. I I see this episode, this question, (laughs) that I'm trying to go at here. It's like walking through that, what, lake marsh thing in The Lord of the Rings, when Frodo's walking through this thing, and there's, like, dead souls hovering under the water, and he has to, like, walk and step in exactly the right place, or he'll fall in and be eaten by these ghosts? That's kind of how I feel about this question. It's territory full of landmines. But I don't know, I'm gonna throw a lot at you, a lot of Bible verses here. Like I said, initially I was gonna try to make this a two-parter, but when I realized, like, my question's really ill-defined already, and if I just try to stretch this out into a two-parter, I'll just end up with two episodes of ill-defined questions... And twice as many landmines to hit, so let's just stick with this one. (laughs) So here we are, question 74. Are there silver bullets? And really what we're asking there is we're looking at the question of grace and salvation. Alright, you'll hear from the pulpit all the time, if you're going to a Protestant church at least, that it is by grace we are saved, through faith, but grace, something given to you, something that you didn't merit. And this is your ticket to the second life, eternal life life abundantly with God in his kingdom. But are there any things that are like silver bullets, you know? Silver bullets being the only type of bullet that'll kill a werewolf. Is there something, is there anything that scripture says like, eh, that's the one thing that actually kind of trumps grace or that puts a wedge in between you and grace and separates you from the flock? Is there anything like that? We're going to go about this in a way of not so much looking at one specific piece of scripture Or one specific silver bullet, if you will. But more or less just throw a bunch of darts at the board and see if any hit a bullseye. And therefore prove themselves to be silver bullets or wooden stakes. By the way, I'm no fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But I remember hearing once upon a time that, if you recall the TV show, Sarah Michelle Gellar, when she hits vampires with the wooden stake, they, like, dissolve. They immediately evaporate into nothing. (laughs) And I remember hearing that the reason they did that, instead of just falling down dead, is because the production crew couldn't handle, you know, tons of bodies. They didn't have the extras to just fill up walkways of dead vampire bodies. So an easy fix was, oh, when you kill a vampire and you stab them in the heart, they immediately evaporate. So poof, no problem. They're gone. They're donezo. Is there anything that we hit a wooden stake with and poof, grace is gone. Salvation annulled. That's our question, right now. Currently, the Bible series my church is going through is a sermon series on the book of Galatians. And it's extremely evident, maybe more so here in Galatians than anywhere else that Paul believes in a firm foundation of grace and you coming to God not because of anything you do, but because righteousness has been imputed onto you. So just to give you a feel for it, here's chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 1 through 6. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. in his Pauline tone, is yelling at the Galatian church because all of a sudden they're falling into these fleshly endeavors and talking about works-based stuff. Doing good works and earning your keep that way, more or less. But last Sunday, we got to this part, later in chapter 3, and it kind of knotted my stomach up a bit. This is chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Is the law, then, contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the big scary part of that phrase is that the scripture, in this case meaning the Old Testament law, was given to imprison everything in sin. Paul says in other places that the law was given to hold us captive, to persecute us in a way, to show us, or perhaps make us, not be blemishless, to have blemishes, <laughs> therefore making Christ's work on the cross necessary if we are to receive salvation. So, once again, we're talking about grace, but we're also seeing this emphasis here, right here in verse 22 grace through faith. Faith is the conduit by which grace comes to us, which is already starting to be the confusing aspect here, right? So, like I said before, there's a lot of landmines here. I don't want to talk about security, eternal security. That's a big buzzword in theological circles. And that concept, that question boils down to, can you lose your salvation once you've attained it? Can God blot you out of the book of life once he's written you in? That's not so much the question I'm trying to look at. I'm more trying to look at a timeless idea. It doesn't matter when you lose your salvation or don't receive your salvation. Just a matter of if you are of the ones that are ending up on the road to destruction, going to hell... How is that coming about? What is the silver bullet that is snapping grace away from you or your ability to receive grace from God and damning you? In this place right here in Galatians, Paul just said we're all condemned under the law and we can do nothing but be condemned. We can't attain righteousness. So if God is this eternal being, fully righteous, and he's building this beautiful kingdom of mansions and wonderful things, and he only wants other righteous beings to be around him, but we're already proven to be unrighteous because of the law. But it just so happens that Christ did this cool thing that if we receive a gift from him, hooray, we all become suddenly righteous. Why is it that we're not all receiving that gift? Because there seems to be this mystical balance here, and this is getting into the Calvinism versus Arminianism debate, which is also what I'm trying not to get into the weeds with because I don't want to ask that question today but how is grace grace if there's something I can do to not receive it right the whole premise of grace I thought was it's something unearned but anyway don't take my word for it let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 this is another letter from Paul and right here these are probably the 10 of the most important foundational arguments The Christians give for the concept of grace and how, you know, salvation works in us, through us, with us, etc. Here we go. Paul speaking here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, "...and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." And here comes the big money-ticket sentence, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. It's something given to you. You didn't do anything to deserve this. You don't have any right to boast because it's simply a gift. Yet, although it's a gift, Jesus says this, Matthew 7, verses 12 and 13. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's the golden rule, right? Next verse. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard. That leads to life, and those who find it are few. The way is hard. How is a gift, receiving a gift, hard? And why is it that only few of us find it? Maybe because there's silver bullets. I want to look at four different ideas, four different concepts of what could potentially be silver bullets, things that separate us from the love of God, things that separate us from receiving grace. So, actually, here's what I want to do. I want to outline our four potential silver bullets first, and then go through them one by one. First potential silver bullet, that there are acts of sin that separate us from grace. Specific sins. Second idea, blasphemy. Blasphemy separates us from the love of God. Third, unendurance slash indolence slash defeatism. Being defeated, not conquering. More on that later, obviously. And the fourth one, obedience. Not being obedient. Disobedience, I guess, is what we would say. (laughs) But let's start with our first potential silver bullet, Acts of Sin. 1 John 315 the second part of the sentence says, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, if you take that fragment of a sentence, you obviously are led to believe the obvious uh, extraction is to think, okay, you can't murder and gain eternal life. He says it right there. No murderer has eternal life. Well, that sounds pretty open and shut. But it doesn't take long to think about this, and it becomes very confusing. For instance, in Acts 22.20, Paul says, I was there when we killed Stephen, and I was happy about that. I nodded along. I approved of his stoning. So he more or less approved a murder, was a murderer, and obviously Paul is gaining eternal life, right? <laughs> he has to be. If we just read... uh 1 John 3.15, with a little context, it becomes eminently clear that he's not really meaning what he's saying here. I'll start in verse 11 of chapter 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay, he says in the same sentence, if you hate your brother, which, who was your brother? Pretty much anyone. So if you've ever hated anyone, you're a murderer, and if you're a murderer, you don't get eternal life. Well, that should be just about all of us, right? Right? This seems to be an allusion, at least in part, to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say, if you ever hate your brother, you're already a murderer. So I think this is kind of like a false flag because John's using hyperbole here, or making the point that, once again, we can't earn salvation, we're blemished, we need someone else to stand in front of us who isn't a murderer, and therefore God will look on us as if we were that person, namely Jesus. But, before we move on, in the same letter, right near the end, John writes this. Chapter 5, starting in verse 13. I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What? What? What the heck are you talking about, John? That makes no sense. That doesn't fit into our ideology of grace at all. How can some sin not lead to death? That makes no sense. That makes no sense. I don't understand. I don't understand. We're not covering that specific question today, but that makes no sense. And that verse alone makes it seem like, yes, there is sin. There are specific things you can do that gets you blotted out of salvation. I don't know what that is. Moving on. Maybe it's blasphemy. Here's Jesus's words, Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, <laughs> this is a Dante Stack 365 Honest Questions News Alert. <laughs> All right, guys, I have to break into the show here uh, because something happened to me. Let me tell you a story. And uh, this story involves the movie The Witch. If you haven't seen it and it's in your queue or you're looking forward to seeing it, you're going to want to skip past this indention into today's episode. Uh, Because I'm going to give away major plot points of the movie. But if you have seen it, or you don't care about horror films, or you're just apathetic, then by all means, listen on. Because yesterday, I watched this movie. And let me back up here. So at my current job, I work from 4.15am to 12.15, just past noon. So my schedule for the past year has been that I get home and I work on podcasting until my wife gets home at you know, a little past five in the afternoon. So I've had like four hours more or less to optimize my podcasting time. Well, last week I finished my other podcast, my pride and joy, my baby, Solve the World. And with Solve the World being done, well, so now I've got these four hours that I'm used to being like, you know, high octane workhorse that, okay, I still want to do this show, but now there's, you know, More time in my afternoon. So I decided I want to at least devote some of that time to exercise because my job pretty much is just to sit on my bottom all morning long. And then I come home and I podcast, which also involves a lot of sitting. So I haven't been too uh, athletic of late. Anyway, I have this rowing machine. So I thought, ah, best of both worlds. I'm a movie guy, I can watch my movies and row on my little rowing device. And life will be great. So, right off the bat, first movie that I watch is one that was recommended to me called The Witch. Which, which, <laughs> witch, witch. Uh, which I believe did quite well at Sundance last year, I think? Anyway, small independent film. I had, you know, very little knowledge about what this film even covered. Besides that it took place during colonial America times and focused on some sort of horror idea involving a witch. So, okay, so I watched it yesterday, and I'm rowing, and I'm rowing, and I'm rowing, and I'm watching this thing, and it's, like most independent films, kind of slow at the beginning, but all the language is ironclad with this religious dogma. So the movie is set in New England, the exact year I don't think is ever stated, but it starts with this one family kind of in front of, I don't know, the mayor or a city council saying, look... We came here to evade religious persecution, but I don't find the Lord in this community. So I'm taking my wife and family, and we're leaving to go start, you know, a new community, whatever, out in the woods. So it starts with, essentially, this one family, father, a mother, a 15-year-old daughter, maybe a 10, 11, 12-year-old son, two four five-year-old twins and a baby, and they go out into the woods to start life anew. And so the movie starts, and there's lots of greys, and there's lots of, you know, pilgrim-y-looking scenes of the family working the land, milking cows and goats, and life seems hard. But then one day, the infant, while the 15-year-old daughter is looking after it, suddenly disappears, like in a flash. And then the movie quickly shows you that A witch has stolen the child. And the witch looks like a haggard old woman, fully nude, and it looks like it uses the child as some sort of sacrifice, because you see, because you see a lot of blood, and it just looks like this witch has sacrificed the child to whatever. But you don't really see much more than that. The family starts tearing itself apart. A few more horrible things happen. Um, that I won't get into the details of, but it's kind of like a slow descent into madness. And by the end of it, everyone's dead, except the 15-year-old daughter. And at the end of the film, she's led into the woods by a black goat, who has kind of been the sign of evil to this family. And of course, she's tried to be good, and I haven't emphasized this enough, but the family is very much Christ-centered. And the whole time, every time something bad happens, the family prays to Jesus, and they repent of their sins, and they keep thinking, we've done something wrong, we've done something wrong. Lord, save us. Lord, save us. We're sorry. Please lead us out of this damnation, or whatever is happening to us. Save us from this condemnation, because we can't handle all these bad things. And especially the father, like, one by one, his children are stolen from him or die, or seem entranced by the devil. Um, anyway, at the end, the father ends up dead, killed by a goat that he's convinced is the devil incarnate, and then the daughter is left alone, 15-year-old daughter, and she's led into the woods by the goat that killed her father, and then there's a house in the middle of the woods, and in the house, she essentially prays to the devil... And then the devil appears, and he appears transparently, like you can see through him. He looks like, I don't know, maybe a, a French merchant of the 17th century. It's kind of odd, um, but the movie does a good job of, you can barely see him, because he's transparent, and there's not much lighting in the room, Um, and he whispers to her, and he offers her a delicious life, I quote. And he shows her a book, and he says, all you have to do is sign this book. And she says, I don't know how. And he says, I'll lead your hand. And then he says, take off your clothes. She does. You don't really see anything. And then, you know, you're at the last five minutes of the film. And you're like, this is, this is horrible. This is just horrible. It's not scary. It's just horrible. Um, and then we have some wide shots of this naked young girl walking through the woods, being led by a goat. Um, and, the, and the camera's really far away, and you can barely see her, um, but then you see a bonfire, and then you hear chanting and singing, and you see all these naked witches chanting at this bonfire and thrusting their bodies all about, it and it's just, you know, demonic looking. But the the scary part of the film is that all of a sudden, and, and you're at this wide shot, right? Like, far away in the woods, it's kind of like... You're a peeping tom from, like, a hundred yards away. You're seeing this thing happen in the distance. But then you see the witches naked. Did I say they're naked? They're all naked old hags thrusting their bodies around, chanting and singing to the bonfire in words you can't understand. And all of a sudden they raise up. They ascend out of the screen. They're lifted up like they're flying. It is horrific. It is terrifying. And then you see our protagonist, this 15-year-old girl, who you have a lot of pity for, a lot of love for, um, because she's done nothing wrong, really, in this film, except apparently now, signed the devil's book. And she starts laughing, and she starts singing, too. And then the film concludes with a tight shot on her face as she's laughing. And that's at night, and you see the trees behind her move... But you realize, no, it's not the trees that are moving, it's her. She's ascending as she's laughing. Uh, the film is obviously showing a demonic reality. And the problem with horror films, of course, is always that goodness, God, the Holy Spirit, seems impotent against the powers of darkness. I don't hold that against them, because I think, you know, sometimes you're looking at a scene... But in order to show you the full picture, sometimes it's best to just focus in on one side. So yeah, this movie isn't about God's goodness or God's power. It's about the supernatural, and it's about demons, and it's about how evil the dark side is. So in this, you just see the power of darkness. You don't see the good. Um, I finished this film. And I'm, like, sweating. Obviously, I'm rowing on my rowboat, so that might have impacted the sweat. But my heart's palpitating, and I'm repenting, and I'm just feeling like, Lord, please don't count me among the goats. I'm sorry. I don't want to be led astray by any demon. I don't want to blaspheme the spirit. And so I walked away yesterday just, like, praying, 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 praying. Because so often I'm glib about all this, and what I'm talking about today in this episode... Uh, I should I should say, I recorded this episode yesterday, and now I'm in the process of editing it. And so I interrupt this editing to bring you my thoughts right now. Um, although I bring this podcast to you, and I know I come across probably super cynical, and probably often I come across angry at God, and I'm bringing you questions that I, I do think are vital... But like a horror film, often I'm only bringing one side of the story to you, because I'm trying to bring to light a specific thing that often I think the church doesn't allow for. It doesn't allow for us to focus on our questions. So I'm going to bring those questions to light, but that doesn't mean the opposite isn't true, right? The witch focuses on the demonic. It doesn't show you God's power, because it's not interested in it in order to convey its message. So... I feel like I do you an injustice when I focus only on my cynical questions and I don't show you the beauty of the gospel and the goodness of God. So I repent of that now to you. And I hope that in describing all this stuff and all my questions that you still understand that there's another side to all this. There's another side to questioning. But anyway, that was my experience yesterday. I'm still kind of emotional about it. Back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Did we just answer our question? Are there silver bullets? There appears to be. Jesus just said... You're never, ever, 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 ever going to be forgiven, not in this age or the age to come, if you blaspheme the Spirit. So all we have to figure out, what the heck does it mean to blaspheme the Spirit? And, weirdly, you can blaspheme Jesus himself and be forgiven, but not the Holy Spirit. Weird. A lot of weird passages today. Alright, so in wanting to know what blasphemy meant, I looked it up on Merriam-Webster and came up with three definitions. First definition. The act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. Well, that's that's definitely me. I've definitely done that. And I've probably done that, for sure I've done that in this podcast. And I maybe I've done that in this recording already. So, if that's what blaspheming the spirit means, I'm out. I've already done it. I'm damned. I've been wooden staked in the heart. Second definition. The act of claiming the attributes of a deity. That one's kind of interesting, so claiming yourself a god. That makes more sense, but why Jesus specifically says that about the Holy Spirit is a little confusing. Um, Third definition, irreverence towards something considered sacred or inviolable. Well, once again, that's probably all of us, so don't really know what to do with this blaspheming of the Holy Spirit thing. So rather than wrestle with it, let's just move on. Third potential silver bullet unendurance or indolence. So outside of the Gospels, we do get Jesus' words. Jesus' words as recorded by John in Revelation. In the first three chapters of Revelation, Jesus talks to or sends a message to seven churches. And at the tail end of each of these seven messages, Jesus uses the phrase, to the one who conquers. I want to go ahead and read all seven of these verses. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the church in Smyrna, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the church in Theatira, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. I'll repeat that one because it's a little different. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. To the church in Sardis, The one who conquers will be clothed, thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. To the church in Philadelphia, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. To the church in Laodicea, the one who conquers i will grant him to sit with me on my throne as i also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne the implication here especially if you read it in context of him saying repent to a lot of these churches is you have to endure you have to keep going carry my word fulfill my good works is what jesus says and you'll be given you know the kingdom of god You'll be given all these good things, a new name, a white stone, white garments. You'll get to sit on my throne. You'll rule over all the nations if you endure and if you conquer. Now, obviously, the context of these words are when the church is being horrifically persecuted unto death, and many people are being asked to renounce Christ with the penalty of death. So it sounds like Christ is demanding or commanding, Don't give up. Don't renounce. Endure. Conquer. Conquer by not letting go. And if you do give up, if you don't conquer, if you don't endure, if you're indolent, well then, these blessings aren't going to come to you. The last potential silver bullet, obedience, or rather, the opposite of obedience, disobedience. I read from Matthew 7 before, when I read the Golden Rule. This is Jesus speaking... At the Sermon on the Mount, you know, right after he's giving the beautiful Beatitudes, he goes into, you know, these longer speeches that Matthew records. And I want to start again from the same point, Matthew 7, verse 12, but I'm going to continue to read because he harps on obedience here and what it means to be obedient and what happens to you if you're not obedient. Jesus says, "...so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets." Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Here we go. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So... Did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Every one then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Did you catch that? And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. This whole segment here of Jesus' speech is focused on works. It's focused on what you do. Now, to all this, there's going to be the classic response of Dante... It's not that works gain your salvation. It's once you have faith, you're going to reflect good works, and you're going to do good things. It's not passing the test that gets you into heaven. It's that passing the test reveals that you were chosen for heaven, that grace was extended to you. Because if you love your family, you're going to want to do good things for them. If you love your wife, you're going to be sweet to your wife. You're going to do good works for your wife because you love her so too Christ's followers are going to be obedient and do good works because they love Jesus. That's good, and that's well, and in my heart I believe that. The problem is, that distinction isn't always made in Scripture. You have to infer it. You read this, if if this piece of Jesus' words was the only scrap of the Bible you got, you would come to the wrong conclusion, right? And if I only got the book of Revelation, I would certainly come to the wrong conclusion. I would come to the conclusion that I have to endure. Or maybe it's not the wrong conclusion. Because after a while, at least for me, when I read time after time, all this talk, this discussion of works, and we didn't even talk about James, and that was going to be what I talked about in part two, but I didn't want to involve him in this discussion. But you read all this stuff and you, you start feeling like, why are there so many proofs? Of whether or not I've accepted grace. Why? If we're all blemished and ugly to begin with anyway, and we can do nothing to gain grace, why do we have to keep talking about good work so much? Grace is supposed to be a freeing principle, an idea that unbinds us from our shackles of sin. But all of a sudden I feel the burden, this weight on my shoulders of, I got to do all these things to prove that I received that grace. And all of a sudden, maybe I'm not shackled down, but I have so much weight on my back that I'm six inches from the ground now. At least that's the feeling. I want to end by throwing the juxtaposition of Romans at you. This is, again, one of the most famous pieces of scripture. Romans 8:31 through 39 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, looks at that verse that Paul goes to great lengths to say nothing can separate us and I look at it and I say the one thing you didn't point at the one thing you didn't mention Paul myself can I separate myself can I load the gun with silver bullets and fire it at my chest this is Dante Stack signing out Peace be the journey.